CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We come to the end of another week with lots of news to discuss on the show today. So why don't we get right to it? Uh, We're joined today by uh, Rene Alegria, the CEO of Mundo Hispanico Digital. Rene, I noticed um, in looking at your uh, page today that, like most other news organizations, it is dominated, the homepage, by news of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yes. It is. That's correct. Um, you know, we, we, there's so few uh, options in Spanish language to receive just uh, news and information that the general market kind of takes for granted. So we obviously provide that. I think the big news of this morning, though, uh, is Emilio Delgado passed away. He played Luis on Sesame Street for 40, 45 years. And if you're a uh, uh, you know, anyone who grew up watching Sesame Street, he and Maria were the token Latinos on the block. And you know what? They were wonderful to watch. And as a Hisp- young Hispanic watching Sesame Street, I certainly uh, was vested in their relationship oh, and success. I'm so thank- it was a big Yeah. Thank you for sharing. By the way, just real quickly, as long as you mentioned it, you, you call them the tokens. But in fact... Sesame Street was one of the first programs that actually included minorities, people of color in its programming. So they were less tokens than they were an opportunity to for us to see Hispanics in a way we didn't usually. Right. I I think in the world of Sesame Street, they were not. But in the world of broadcast TV at the time, they absolutely were. Oh, okay. You know, aside from. Speedy Gonzalez, you know, we had Luis and Maria, yeah. you know, okay. and so, so, you know, rest in peace. Fair Amiga. enough. Thank you for uh, sharing that with us. Um, professor Andra Gillespie is with us. You know Andra. She's professor of political science at Emory University and also director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. How are you today, Andra? I'm doing okay today. How are you? Good. I'm glad you're here. And uh, Karen Owen is joining us, a professor of political science at the University of West Georgia. And we don't say it enough, Karen, you are also uh, the director of the Thomas B. Murphy Center for Public Service out at the University of West Georgia. Among other things, you uh, oversee a collection of all of Thomas B. Murphy's, the late great speaker of the Georgia House of the Papers. You have a replica of the remarkable office he had down at the Capitol. So we should mention that more often. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. And we are fortunate at the University of West Georgia to have the Speaker Tom Murphy papers and office. It's a wonderful collection and the public should come visit it. It's in our library. (laughs) Okay. Thank you for that. You you deserve that plug. Uh, All right. Let's get right to it. Uh, Karen, I'll start with you, as long as the ball is in your court. Uh, Brian Kemp uh, announced yesterday, uh, officially, he filed the paperwork, he qualified for office, he put down his money, and he is now officially a candidate for re-election for uh, governor. Uh, Let's listen to just a little bit of what he said uh, as he uh, addressed a crowd of supporters. Look, I've been focused on Stacey Abrams. We've been waiting for this day for three years. Uh, You know, what we're going to have to overcome to to win the nomination, we're not taking for granted, but our sights are focused on what the, you know, who who the real opponent's going to be. So, Karen, let's go into a few things that are very notable about that. First of all, he said we're focused on Stacey Abrams. Of course, he has a primary challenger, David Perdue, who he's got to beat to get to Stacey Abrams, but Brian Kemp didn't talk about Purdue at all. That's right. I think that the Kemp campaign has uh, maybe their major focus right now should be on this primary and Purdue, but I think they're pivoting and they want to really have attack on Abrams um, and not Purdue because I think they're trying to actually see what their coalition 
of all the conservatives they can bring about. And then he's running as an incumbent. So I think he's going to have to talk about his record, talk about things he's doing. Um, also, I think um, he is the one, I think if I remember correctly, he mentioned in this that he's the one that had beaten Abrams in 2018. So he's going to have to continue. You know, he's the one candidate. If the Republicans in the primary are looking for the candidate who can beat her, he has done that. And so he's going to talk about that messaging and really not focus on Purdue. And if you look at the polling right now, he's up um, over Purdue by 11 points or more in some, you know, seven or eight and others. So that makes a difference. I think he can he kind of has a little feeling that he needs to kind of be focused on a broader campaign strategy, not just looking at primary. Andra, another thing that was interesting to me about the Kemp uh, uh, event at the Capitol yesterday is he had a huge group of people, Republican supporters, lined up behind him. He did it at the steps to the third floor of the Capitol. The steps were full all the way from the second floor up to the third floor. In pretty sharp contrast to Purdue, we had reporting on our show the other day from Riley Bunch, who was down at the Capitol when David Purdue qualified. And uh, she pointed out that uh, the P- Purdue did not have a lot of supporters with him. Now, that doesn't mean anything in terms of who's going to win and who's not. But obviously yesterday, the Kemp folks wanted to make a point of saying, look at how much support we have right here in this room. Yes? Yes. I mean, I think that that was a flex move. Um, and he was trying to demonstrate that despite the fact that he has been embattled by some in the National Party, particularly former President Donald Trump, he actually has the wherewithal and the network to be able to win in his own right based on his own record and his decades of political involvement in Georgia, including holding public office. And I think that that's actually a really important thing for people in the National Party to think about. Um, uh, for them, an endorsement from Donald Trump might be nice, but it is not necessarily the be all end all of being able to hold on to an office. And so as an incumbent, as somebody who is deeply entrenched in Georgia politics, he's showing that he actually has the power and the bandwidth to be able to sustain a primary and carry that into a general election. Um, Renee, uh, he did say that he felt and he'll continue to say this out on the campaign trail that he fulfilled promises that he had made in his first run. And of course, one of the most important being he had promised teachers they were going to get raises of $5,000. And he's now gotten, after three plus years of working for that, pretty much gotten them up to that point. Um, and he will, he will use that as one of the uh, signs of how much he thinks he's actually accomplished for the state. Uh, you're welcome to comment on that. But let me also throw out some of the other language in the Kemp remarks yesterday, because I think they're so indicative of a broader kind of Republican template that doesn't really speak to specific opponents, but are worth are worth mentioning. Uh, he talked about the fact that um, uh, she is the candidate, Stacey Abrams, of the woke culture. Um, she is um, a part of the radical left. He said this, we are in a fight for the soul of our state against Stacey Abrams, Joe Biden, the national media, and many far-left allies that will be playing in this game. Uh, speak to all of that. Well, I mean, it's it's political theater, isn't it? He's, he's, he's essentially dismissing Purdue outright, not even mentioning him. By doing so, he his, his campaign essentially... Uh, you know, cuts cuts Purdue off at the knee by n- not mentioning him. Also, you know, it puts Trump and everything that Trump stands for on the outskirts of what is not essential in Kemp's conservative coalition by making Abrams the, you know, the enemy of all good things, Georgian conservative. Uh, he's he's putting a spotlight into and onto, you know, what is going to be his number one uh, arch nemesis uh, heading into the election in November. I I did think it was uh, really good optics with Kemp and his posse there signing everything. You know, you you saw you kind of almost believe he's got the the this, you know, this incredible coalition of conservatism uh, behind him, literally. Uh, whereas Purdue does does not, you know. Obviously, Abrams and her first rally happens 
on Monday, uh, the 14th, right? Uh, she's largely been out of sight watching Purdue and Kemp kind of duke it out. It's, it's almost uh, brilliant timing on her part in that Kemp is stepping up and saying, it's you, Abrams. And Abrams is, you know, with her schedule dictated that, yeah, it's me. And this is, this is what I'm all about. So it'll be very interesting to see what she says at that rally. And we know that she's brilliant when she's on a podium and, you know, outlining what she believes in and her vision for Georgia. So it's, uh, you know, let the, let, the, let the fireworks begin starting Monday. Um, so, Andra, uh, it, 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 I want to pick up on part of what Renee said there and also go back to the notion that he had such a big crowd behind him. Uh, when David Perdue qualified on Wednesday, he repeated um, uh, a message that he's been talking about for a while. Now, I just don't see how Brian Kemp can unite the Republican Party. There are too many problems uh, for him to be able to pull us all together. So, again, part of the visual of yesterday was for him to show, well, look at how much of the Republican Party I have united behind me right now. Uh, you're certainly welcome to talk about that. But also, what do you make of this language that's, again, like a template, the woke culture, the radical left? I'm fighting not just against uh, my opponents, but I'm fighting against the me national media. Um, talk about that a little bit. Uh, well, I, I think what Governor Kemp is trying to do is he's trying to uh, reclaim some of the Trump banner, at least from an ideological and stylistic standpoint, without having to embrace Trump since he doesn't have uh, the endorsement. And I think he's following um, in the footsteps of, of, of Glenn Youngkin, figuring out how you can embrace Trump and then simultaneously distance yourself from um, him. And so the idea that he's bringing up woke culture, cancel culture, um, the way I suspect critical race theory is likely going to figure into um, our, uh, our our campaign discourse in, in this particular cycle is part of what I think is a larger national trend to try to weaponize these issues, to try to uh, rally uh, college-educated suburban white voters um, onto uh, you know, giving the Republicans a second look after they, uh, particularly women, abandoned um, uh, uh, Donald Trump in the 2020 cycle. Um, you know, the thing about what uh, David Perdue was trying to do in floundering is, is that He's trying to use his 2014 brand in 2022, um, and it's not quite resonating well. So I think he thought that, you know, the Trump endorsement was going to send him into the stratosphere. That hasn't proved to be true. And so he's trying to still say that I'm the outsider. I'm the one that's going to do things different to tap into that populist sentiment that made Donald Trump so successful in the first place. But after you've served a term as a U.S. senator, you're no longer an outsider. Um, when your cousin was governor of the state um, and, and, and then became secretary of agriculture, you definitely aren't an outsider. And you weren't really an outsider when you used that moniker and the, and the jean jacket in 2014. But I think it resonates less and less well today. And so uh, Purdue needs to come up with a new message that's going to distinguish himself. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, I mean, we will wait to see, you know, what the primary results actually uh, manifest. But right now, given what we've seen in some of the survey data, like it doesn't look like, you know, the alignment with Trump and the positioning as an outsider is working for him. Well, uh, Karen, let's talk about uh, let's talk about this in the context of this Fox News poll, uh, which came out earlier this week. Let me throw out a few numbers, uh, Karen and then Renee, uh, and, and then we'll discuss them. Uh, we, we saw in Fox's poll that Governor Kemp is at 50 percent. This is Republican voters in Georgia. He's at 50 percent. Purdue is at 39 percent. 10 percent say they are unsure or they might want to support a different candidate. Um, first of all, that strikes me, if that's accurate, there's not a lot of room for growth if you're behind, uh, as uh, the polling, this poll and others have shown David Perdue. But then let's add a couple other figures and then get everybody to weigh in. Uh, Fox asked uh, whether Georgia Republicans who are going to vote in the primary, what they think of Donald Trump. Uh, 57 percent said he, they have a strongly favorable impression. 22 percent somewhat favorable. And then uh, like 19 percent were favorable or unfavorable. And let me add to that, among the subgroup with strongly favorable opinions of the former president, it is Purdue 
who has the edge. 52% for Purdue to 39% uh, for uh, Kemp. And, and so that, that's the place where I think David Purdue sees himself uh, picking up ground and gaining energy with the Trump supporters. As we've said all along, Karen, his whole campaign is built around support from Donald Trump. It is. And that's why he jumped in, I believe, is, you know, Trump really wanted him to run and he's carrying that banter as we go forward. And I think one thing that you you mentioned at the top, and I know numbers are difficult to kind of comprehend sometimes as we're talking about them, but that Kemp is at 50 and Purdue is at 39. And so if only 10% out there is undecided or picking someone else, it's really difficult for yeah. Purdue to see that path to victory. And interesting too, other polls have shown, you know, Kemp ahead nine, 10 as well with some undecided, but I think people know the incumbency. Another piece in this poll showed Kemp has broad support. He's broadly popular. Let me rephrase that. He had 68% favorabilities amongst these voters. So I think Purdue is definitely trying to just stay with Trump. And if Trump's in this, you know, in Georgia in the next few weeks, that may be a difference to turn out that um, and ignite people and to get them excited again. But I think Kemp, um, as you mentioned, kind of in the conversation before, he's staying in talking points at the national, that like, there's national things happening, that, but I'm going to tell you what I've done here in Georgia to kind of walk away from the idea that he doesn't have that Trump endorsement. I do want to say one thing before we move on, and, and Renee, that um, for your good comments, that Andre mentioned his outsider status, David Perdue. And I think the interesting there is he's not talking outside. He's talking that he loves being a challenger and he's going to be fighting. And then part of it is he's mentioned he's going to be really asking Kemp tough questions as to why he didn't do certain things in 2020. But I think from the throwback, even Kemp or Abrams could ask him, what did you do for six years as senator? Let's you answer some questions for us. And then you didn't amass in 2021's runoff a win. So voters didn't connect to you again. So I think there's a lot at play in those different pieces of it's saying you're this challenger and then how Kemp runs as the incumbent. Renee? Well, I, you know, I, I'm I'm struck by one, your question regarding the, the, the Kemp template and messaging, right? About connecting uh, Abrams and Biden, uh, and 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 Andra saying, you know, very astutely how how that that template just is a bit tired. And I'm reminded of Loeffler's debate with Warnock, where she mentioned radical left, uh, radical liberal, I think it was. I don't know, a dozen times, so much so that it became a spoof and so much so that, frankly, it came off as robotic, rehearsed and not connected to what Georgians really, really, who Georgians really are. Now, obviously, Warnock has gone on to produce a body of work in the Senate that, you know, isn't anything but the radical left. You know, it, it is very much centrist in, in, in many ways. Uh so you kind of you kind of see the, the the language coalescing into a template, and again, it's it's it is that machine. It's robotic. It doesn't really connect with this authenticity uh, layer that we are living in right now, and it just makes me wonder uh, how they're going to break beyond those who won't ever vote for anyone other than a Republican and how they are going to then convince independence uh, or that suburban, you know, question mark as to who, as to whether they have the better ideas um, to govern Georgia. Um, Andra, let me ask you about another finding in this poll to see what you make of it. Uh, here's what Fox News says. Interest in the election is high. Over eight in 10 GOP primary voters are, quote, extremely or very interested in voting. 54% extremely, 28% uh, say they are interested. Um, the extremely interested voters break for Purdue by seven points over Kemp. So there's another area where Purdue probably hopes he has some room to uh, maneuver. But, but I wonder how you see that potential you know, interest by Republicans, not only in the primary, but if it, if it continues into the general, how powerful that might be. 
Um, enthusiasm is one of those measures that uh, political scientists use to try to guess, uh, you know, what uh, the outcome of the midterm elections is going to be. So there's certain things like GDP growth that factor into presidential election vote models. Uh, enthusiasm and the generic ballot um, are the primary thing to look at when you're looking at um, uh, when you're when you're looking at trying to predict how many seats the incumbent party is going to carry in a midterm election. So like this is what made Alan Abramowitz famous. Um, and so uh, one, if we look at the generic ballot question, it doesn't bode well for Democrats nationally. Um, and then secondly, another kind of harbinger is kind of a proxy for the generic ballot would be enthusiasm because mm -hmm. that uh, could have significant implications for voter turnout. So if Republicans are enthused uh, and they stay enthused for the general election, they um, might turn out at higher rates than Democrats do. And that's certainly not going to help uh, Democrats who are already challenged by the fact that, you know, the president's party tends to lose seats um, during this time period. If there's one more thing that I could add to this, uh, you know, this is the second poll that we've talked about in probably two or three weeks about the Republican primary. And I think I expressed a little bit that I had concerns about the previous poll just because that pollster is known for creating sampling frames that don't make a whole lot of sense to other people. And so even though he gets lucky, um, and, 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 you know, has famously, uh, called some things, right. Um, I still kind of have, uh, you know, concerns about this. It was actually something that we brought up with Nate, uh, Nate Silver at dinner. Uh, we were like, why do they have an A minus rating? And it's like, because they've called some elections, right. And so it didn't, and, it, and even he acknowledged that there were questions about the sampling frame. The fact that we have a second poll that's coming out and, and the Fox news kind of survey unit, you know, does the same type of work that everybody else does, uh, and so we, we tend to take what they say seriously and the, and the professionals that work there seriously. The fact that they are saying the same thing, that Brian Kemp is ahead and that this is statistically significant, I think is actually a positive sign that there's some there there to the fact that Brian Kemp uh, does have some momentum, despite the fact that, that David Perdue has some strength among some subsections of the Republican electorate. Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned that, because while I know a lot of people are very skeptical about polling in general, because so often... Uh, things don't turn out the way the polls suggest. It's more sophisticated than that. Nevertheless, I get why people are skeptical. Uh, the Fox News polling team uh, has a lot of integrity. They do their work. They, uh, are, uh, they, they are a polling uh, unit that I think we ought to be paying attention to. Uh, let's uh, add one more element to that uh, poll. The, uh, uh, Karen, they polled the, Senate, the Republican Senate contest. Herschel Walker, 66%. Gary Black, 8%. Kelvin King, 3%. Latham Sandler, 2%. I, I, I ask this question again. Is there anything to believe that tells us that this race, unless there's some shocking revelation about Herschel Walker, that this race is not essentially over? It certainly feels that way, that the primaries kind of settled here when you see those high numbers. And especially that Gary Black, who is has been a statewide official, is polling less than 10 percent. Um, I think you're right. Something drastically will have to happen between now and May 24th. Those campaigns of Kelvin King, Gary Black, Latham Sadler and others, if they're going to go after Herschel Walker, they're going to have to do it really quickly. They may have waited too long even to make some attacks. But I think it does show that Herschel's name ID, his celebrity kind of brand is really carrying voters. They identify with that. I think the poll also mentioned that on that Senate race, that one of the biggest issues will be the discussion of the economy. Mm -hmm. And so as we pivot to, you know, if Herschel is the Republican nominee, which it, it looks very favorable for him, you know, how is he going to have conversations on the campaign trail with voters about the economy um, when Warnock has obviously been working in the Senate, passing relief packages, you know, making sure that there's some earmarks. I think we read this morning there are earmarks coming to Georgia from that budget. So he's got a lot to talk about how he's really wanting to help the state. And so it'll be interesting if Herschel stays on national talking points on the economy or if he'll actually be able to dig into some of what the state needs and can um, or has the ability to support. Um uh, Renee, I should quickly say that, of course, there have been revelations about Herschel Walker's past that people have known about for some time now. There may be new ones coming. The AJC actually has a story today um, that we won't have time to get into in depth today, but essentially raises questions about whether his businesses have been as successful as he likes to portray them. Um, but uh, nevertheless, um, 
it, so far, these polls suggest that the things about his treatment of women in the past have not had a, a discernibly negative effect, although Fox News polls does say that women are a little less inclined to vote for him, 60 percent of women as opposed to 73 percent of men. Um, the women are basically saying they may have other ideas about who to vote for. But it's a small it's a, when you're at 60 percent, even among women voters, uh, again, you seem to be in fairly solid shape unless something really startling happens. Well, I, I think you you hit it right on the head. What what could possibly come out that is as shadowy as what we've all learned from his past, both personally, uh, now professionally in business ventures? I think I think I think that what what his campaign is doing by keeping him away from everyone is working for the Republican primary. They're they're seeing Herschel Heisman. Bulldog champion, and that's it. And Trump, you know, those are those are the keywords that are driving the Republican primary numbers his way. Those are not going. Those keywords are not going to work with a general election with a formidable candidate with a record that uh, that frankly can can attract even right of center, if not right voters given Warnock's, you know, spiritual platform and just his, his, his grassroots sensibility of really connecting with people. So, uh, yeah, does he have the, the primary wrapped up? Sure. But that's it. And that doesn't say a lot about how it connects with o overall Georgia. Um, hey, can, I, can I just add quickly, Bill, sorry, that, you know, Andre made a, a great point about the turnout piece here with enthusiasm. And I think that there's a lot of enthusiasm going into the primary, partially driven by this Herschel Walker brand, Heisman Trophy amongst some voters excited to get out the Trump piece. And I think, you know, if we look at the balloting coming up, the Senate candidate will be at the top and then the governor. So I think the if you get really energized Republicans for May, but then Kemp wins the nomination for governor. Can you keep driving that turnout to November? And do you rely then on some of Herschel's momentum if he is the nominee? I think that will be a really interesting and fascinating watch on turnout. Do Republican voters come and get excited about Herschel still, but then they don't even vote for governor? Will they roll off? some of them, or will they keep going down the ballot? Yeah, I think I'm correct that Republicans have, although Kemp will obviously, or Purdue if he wins, the governor's race will be high up on the on the ballot. Uh, it is Republicans who tend to drop off in voting on races as you move down the ballot more than Democrats. Don't, don't I have that right, Andra? Uh, I would have to confirm that. Okay, I think that's basically I'll what. Check. Yeah, I think we've talked about that on the show on a number of occasions. Some of your uh, colleagues actually have talked about that. But be that as it may, let's talk before I've got to get to a break. Uh, Andra, let's talk about Stacey Abrams for a minute. She launches her first tour of the state going into a handful of cities, eight, maybe nine cities. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Some of them are smaller uh, cities. Uh, for instance, Cuthbert where uh, uh, I think she's going to talk about expansion, full expansion of Medicaid because of there are problems there with uh, getting access to health care. Um, but she's, Andra, really in, couldn't be in a better position, right? She's going to go out on her One Georgia tour. She can talk about her positive vision for the state of Georgia. She doesn't have to talk about Brian Kemp and run him down or David Perdue because they can fight it out among themselves so she can take the high road and paint a picture of what the state would mean uh, under her leadership. Very good place to be, yes? Um, it is a good place to be, but it is not without its challenges in this particular cycle for Abrams. So the advantage that she has relative to Kemp and Purdue is she doesn't have to fight uh, a primary battle, expend a lot of energy, perhaps get a little bit bloodied and have to rebrand herself for the general election. So she gets to define, define herself and present a positive message for a few months while the Republicans do get out. But 
I think we also have to remember that she's already pretty well-defined in the state. People have opinions. They are probably pretty baked into the cake. So if people don't like her, they're probably, it's going to be a challenge to try to convince people that they should actually give her a second look and perhaps reconsider their position. I think the other thing that we're seeing is, is that Governor Kemp is signaling that he intends to start running the general election contest now mm -hmm. and that he's going to view the primary as a bit of a nuisance until it tightens a little bit. And so because of that, I think the attacks against Abrams are going to start earlier than they normally would, especially if Kemp uh, is able to uh, continue to hold a pretty substantial lead uh, in the Republican contest. Well, I think it's fair to say that Republicans, including Brian T uh, Kemp, in various ways have been attacking Stacey Abrams already uh, uh, for months, anticipating, of course, that she would uh, declare that she was going to run for governor again. Uh, thank you for a terrific conversation about where we stand with the governor's race, everybody. We're going to take a break now and come back with more. Let's look at a few things that bubbled up in the legislature this past week, and we'll uh, do that in just a moment. Andrew Gillespie, Renee Alegria, Karen Owen, join me for today's Political Rewind, and thank all of you out there uh, for being with us. By the way, quick note. Uh, you know, we've launched the Political Rewind newsletter. It comes out every Wednesday. Uh, the current issue is still available. If you haven't subscribed, there's a chance to take a look at that one. And it passed issues as well. Just go to gpb.org slash newsletters. We invite you to join us as uh, I put out my ideas of what I think are the interesting and in some cases most important political stories of each week. Okay, legislature continues marching forward. Next Tuesday is a big day down at the Capitol. It's what they call crossover day. Um, essentially what happens is if a bill hasn't gotten the approval passed through one house uh, by the end of next Tuesday, there's not time for it to be considered and passed by the other house. Now, the reality is a bill's never dead at the state capitol. There are always ways to take measures and attach them as amendments to other bills. Nevertheless, it's, it's a big day for a lot of legislation. And, and I mention that, uh, Karen Owen, uh, because there was a bill dropped this week on Tuesday that um, – has come to be called Don't Say Gay Bill based on a, a measure that Florida has already passed. But, but let me talk about it more specifically and then ask each of you to weigh in on it. It's Senate Bill 613, uh, Senator Cardin Summers of Cordial. Uh, his measure would prohibit discussions of gender identity and sexual orientation in private school classrooms at the primary grade level. It would also ban teaching that one race or sex is superior to another, that a person should be discriminated against because of their race or ethnicity, and that slavery represents, quote, the true founding of the United States, kind of mashing all of that uh, together. So, Karen, why don't we t talk about this? Nobody expects this bill is going to pass this session, but LGBTQ groups are already saying they think this is another effort to marginalize them as a community, and they fear that it's setting the table for next session when it could come back in in bigger way. And it's also a good bill for Republicans to run on for election. Yes? Yes, and I think the bill's sponsor even made the statement that he was just dropping this as a conversation starter. He didn't expect it to actually move through before crossover day or see any kind of final passage in this legislative session. I think that these issues, many of the Republicans in the state house and state Senate are seeing um, that education is a very important issue to many of their constituents and their parents. And a lot of this is because during pandemic, parents actually realized what their children were being taught and they hadn't been as focused. And I think some of the parents got a little upset when they did recognize some things were being taught um, but I think part of it is a little bit of a parent guilt because they had not paid attention previously <laughs> and then they were looking into it. And then maybe we need to jump in and get involved now. So these representatives are hearing from parents, but it's playing into what worked in conversations in Virginia during that gubernatorial election. It really energized people. And can you bring that here? And I think it's a lot of just election politics for this year because they want to make a stand before they go back to their voters and then we'll see, you know, if the Republicans win the governorship 
and they do maintain, you know, majorities in the in the House and Senate, then the conversation may be different next January. Renee. Well, I, you know, you, you, you take a look at how Florida is is reacting to the don't say gay bill, which is I mean, just even the name just sounds so archaic. Right. I mean, it just it, it doesn't seem as though it's it, it's real, given the the culture that we're used to in a democratically elected uh, free society. Right. Um, high school kids all over Florida are staging school walkouts to protest the bill there. Uh, you know, I mean, same-sex marriage has been a federal law since 2015. Uh, t- today's kids have, have grown up with it. There are gay parents all over television, um, modern family, kids' cartoons, right? I mean, it, the reality of, of same-sex marriage um, is is forever present. Uh, There are countless YA books depicting, you know, the reality of what it is to be LGBTQ in the United States. What what I think this is doing is is really coalescing a generation into being politically active because they're seeing a total disconnect between those who are governing and running and their 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 messaging and the reality of, of 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 how we live in the United States. So, you know, yes, I I agree that this is a, again a type of political theater that is going to get rile up parents and rile folks up. But at the end of the day, it's it's really going to be the this this next generation that can't wait to unplug that generation from what they're saying and how they're living and the hypocrisy of it all um, so that the reality of how people live and the rights that we have uh, voted into uh, this country and should all be proud of uh, can be can be free. Um, so I, I think I think that there's a it's very complex. There are a lot of real, real, real serious, dark things that can come out of it. But I, I do think that ultimately, at the end of the day, the the next generation is going to just upend it all. And given the power of social media and TikTok and whatnot, um, not to mention TV and books and, yes, education, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're seeing literature come out of uh, reading history in a different way and seeing how there are and have been uh, gay men and women that have contributed greatly to this country. So it's going to be an interesting discussion, nonetheless. Andra, step in. I want to talk about something else that I think is, is, is really important but related to this. I'll start off by saying we talked about this before. The idea that Georgia is jumping on the bandwagon, you know, is, is not unusual. And it shows kind of from a laboratory standpoint how things that get discussed and passed in one state get proliferated to other places and how there's a coordinated centralized effort when the bills and things look look, look the same. The thing that really struck me about the uh, about this proposed piece of legislation, I think the thing that looks different is the focus on private education. Yeah. Um, and so the idea uh, that there would be a proposal to try to stop private schools from teaching what they wanted to teach. I thought people sent their kids to private school because they wanted to expose them to certain types of values. And if parents want their children to hear about diversity, to hear about it in terms of gender and sexuality, and they send their kid to a school where this is going to be taught, right? They pay for it, they know, and they want that. Why are we restricting their freedom from being able to do that? That would be almost the equivalent of what would you feel if I say, you know what, we can't have parochial education anymore, right? Because we don't want you talking about religion, separation of church and state. And we want to make sure that that, that kids have the opportunity to make their own decisions. Uh, so I, I, I just, I, I found that particularly like galling and sort of inconsistent with what I know uh, this legislator would probably uh, think about if somebody went after, you know, parochial or or, uh, Christian schools or, you know, anything else like that. 
But the other thing about it that's also interesting was that when I read the article, I was like, you know what? This is why people don't want uh, uh, but vouchers, right? Because the issue is, is that is there, if these private schools are getting state funding, then they should be subject to the same rules that they want to impose on public schools. And so this is precisely why people like don't like vouchers, uh, because they don't want the state telling private schools what to do or to subsidize. And so, I, you know, I, I just box. Um, not just sort of the obvious kind of text of it, but there's also a subtext context that doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. I, you know, Andre, thank you. You hit on an aspect of this that I was perplexed by, uh, and I'm, I, I'm not an, a lawyer. I'm not down at the Capitol reporting on the session, so I haven't had the same opportunity reporters do to talk to the sponsor, Cardin Summers, on this bill and others. I don't quite understand why he focuses on private schools. I'm not aware of the extent to which the state can, in fact, pass laws that restrict what's taught in a private school. Again, I'm no lawyer, and maybe somebody out there can send me a note and tell me uh, what the, uh, why that state would have jurisdiction in that way. So the whole thing feels, Karen, like it's just put together – in a very odd way, and as Cardin Summers, as you pointed out, said himself, I just want to start a conversation. Yes, a conversation that Republican incumbents can take back to their Republican voters and say, look what I did. I'm cracking down on conversations about gays and lesbians and transgendered people. Karen? Yes, I think that's part of it. It's just the Republican legislators are, are working through an issue that they can take back to voters. On the private school piece, though, um, doesn't the other Senate bill, 377, I can't remember, 337, that's also dealing with public school mm -hmm. issues and that, that maybe, you know, and again, I, I haven't spoken to the sponsor, but, you know, that to me, that vehicle is already moving on the public school sector side. And so if you drop into the private school, here's one of those, as you mentioned at the top, if it got some, you know, momentum, you could throw it in as an amendment or something onto the 377. Um, one thing that is um, interesting here for me is the idea that um, we're having these conversations about private school too, but private school parents can get tax credit, right, to have some money from the state put back into their children's school. It's not really a voucher program, but then again, there are taxpayer dollars that are being somewhat supportive of private schools. And that may be part of where they're seeing this yeah. kind of state overreach into it. Yeah, I think that might be part of it, too. Thank you for that. All right, let's do this. we got to get one more break out of the way for today's show. When we come back, more on Political Rewind. We're back on Political Rewind uh, for the final segment of our show uh, today. Um, let's talk just quickly, uh, uh, Renee Alegria, about the fact that the House has now passed uh, a, an income tax uh, relief bill, which they say is worth $1 billion uh, and will bring uh, 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 tax breaks uh, uh, to uh, thousands and thousands of Georgians. It, it remains unclear. Uh, there are critics who say this bill, in the language of the way it's written, will in fact uh, benefit higher income Georgians and that it may not be of much benefit to those who are not making a great deal of money. Uh, but again, uh, it's an election year <laughs> and, you know, more power to them. They're passing legislation that they think will appeal to uh, voters. But what, what do you make of this one billion dollar tax relief bill? Yeah, well, I, you know, it's switching to a, a flat tax flat taxes, uh, a splashy campaign talking point. And I, I, I don't think that it'll significantly benefit most voters as it's as most who have written about it uh, say. Um, it'll make it easier to cut uh, social programs that are very popular. Uh, but it doesn't even take effect until, you know, way down the road. I think it, I think it was 2025 or, or, or something, something to, to that effect. Um, you know, I, I, again, it's it's you, you can really get uh, disengaged by how the rhetoric of such bills makes it through the Senate, um, and it's dangerous to be disengaged. You know, I think that voters need to 
pay attention and re-engage and look through the theater and all the noise. Uh, this bill does exactly that, okay. creates well, more and more noise. We're going to keep track of it, but I want to talk about another bill uh, with our uh, little remaining time. Andre Gillespie, there is now a measure that is moving forward that uh, puts new penalties in place for people who go out and uh, stage protest demonstrations. A lot of this is a response to what happened in that hot summer of 2020, Black Lives Matter, um, uh, the, the, the deaths of of George Floyd, of Rayshard Brooks, Maude Arbery. And, and this now establishes new, more serious uh, penalties. It isn't as if you couldn't be arrested uh, in a demonstration for blocking a highway, for instance, which did happen. But this uh, uh, steps up the kind of penalties that can be applied. But I think there's a portion of this that was particularly interesting to me beyond the penalties. Um, you'd have to get a permit in advance before you can have one of these demonstrations. And I think that's a really interesting aspect of the bill. These marches took place spontaneously. Are you there, Andra? Apparently, we're, we've lost Andra's signal for, for a moment. Uh, Karen? So I would just say that you're right. The permitting piece is unique that you're gonna have to kind of plan ahead when you know you wanna demonstrate. But in two, in this language where, you know, if the protest turns violent, if people are going out to demonstrate, to really speak about their cause and show that there's injustice, sometimes they don't know it's gonna turn violent and then you're caught there, correct? And so, um, you know, you may have started out with good principles, but then others joined in who then turned and then what will happen there? Um, the other piece, I think is really um, something to look at is the fact that local governments could be held liable mm. for these protests becoming violent on the destruction of property. I mean, how does that, if it, it feels like this was definitely in response to the urban uh, social justice protests, but how is this going to affect the rural communities that, you know, local governments, sheriffs are so intertwined. How can they handle it? I think that's a question we really need to look at when you're proposing things statewide, right? How does this have a, an effect for smaller communities versus what you were trying to maybe intentionally get for in the larger communities? Do we have you back, Andra? Do we have Andra back? Uh, we don't have her back. Uh, uh, Renee? Well, I, you know, the U.S. is built on protest, right? I mean, the Boston Tea Party essentially formed our government through through that fateful day, uh, you know? And the, so we have to remember that, that protest is just a, a very important part of how American discourse and what people want, believe in, vote on, uh, express themselves. Uh, that said, this bill, you know, as, as, as Karen pointed out, requires permits. Um, which, you know, completely politicizes who's allowed to protest, depending on who's in charge of local government, right? So imagine a world where George Floyd can't be protested, but the Freedom Convoy mm -hmm. can close trade routes just because they have a, a permit. And it is unfair to more inner city, urban protests that don't file the correct paperwork. So, it, you know, it's it's a dangerous bill. Um, I bill. really think what you just said is about uh, uh, politicizing the permit process is particularly interesting. Andre, I think we have you back with us. Apparently not. I, I'm really sorry that we've lost Andre because I wanted her to get to weigh in on this. All right, look. We're, we're sh getting short of time. Maybe we'll be lucky and have Andre back for this last little bit of the show because I want to say how excited I am personally about the fact that this city, the state, is celebrating the 90th birthday of Andrew Young. He turns 90 tomorrow. There's four days of celebrations around his birthday. I have said on this show on any number of occasions I feel unbelievably privileged that over the last literally almost four decades, I, Andrew Young and I have uh, become gone from people I covered, someone I covered as a reporter, to having become friends. And uh, his wisdom 
always inspires me, and I'm just so happy for him that the uh, he's getting the kind of celebration he deserves. Karen? Absolutely. Happy birthday, Andy Young. And what an amazing legacy he's had for the state. I mean, bringing so many important projects for the city of Atlanta, using his international um, reputation and helping the city have the Olympics. I mean, just a list of things he's done. But I think one thing that always stands out to me is when we need a calm voice, a voice of reason and wisdom, you go to Andrew Young to get that and he will give it to you. And that's one of his most lasting remarks for many people. Renee? Yeah, to echo Karen, happy birthday, Andy Young. Um, you know, what, what, what I love about, and everyone has an Andy Young quote or knows someone who, you know, has learned so much from him directly, Bill, you just uh, you just gave your own example. Uh, you know, he's not a native Georgian. He came to Georgia and he he idealistically built a life uh, to, you know, a civic life here. And for a state that is attracting so many folks out of state, he really is, uh, you know, a beacon of how to do it right. And for that, I thank you, Andy Young. Um I, I, as I think many people who listen to the show know, um, Andy and I sat down a couple of years ago at the Carter Center to do a show in which uh, we, I basically talked about his life, starting from his uh, youth in New Orleans uh, all the way through his days with Dr. Martin Luther King and beyond. And um, we just aired that show uh, a week or so ago. It's available on our podcast or at our website at gpb.org/pr, and it's a it's a I think it's a really wonderful conversation. Not because of me in any way, but because Andy really talks very very candidly and in a very relaxed way about his life. So I recommend that to you if you haven't uh, heard it before. We're out of time uh, for today. Thank you all so much for being with us. Um, I, you know, we're, this is one of those days on a Friday when we're on television at 7 o'clock at night. It takes a big team to make that happen. So it includes Dennis Buchanan, Alex Word, Jeff Bunk, Jake Cook, Taylor Klotz, Aaron Rothwell, James Sterner, Matthew Wolf, Reagan Smith, and, of course, uh, Natalie Mendenhall, Sam Burmis-Dawes, and uh, our our standard engineer, Jesse Neiswanger. I thank all of them for the work they do on the show every week for TV and every day for my Political Rewind team. That's it for us. Uh, we'll be back again with a brand new show on Monday. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy. Thank you, Renee, Karen, and Andra. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>